started here, otherwise we won't have to get finished. We are in 2 Samuel chapter 1 today as we begin a new book. Of course, it's really not a new book, as we said. It used to all be one book, just the account of the uh, beginning of the monarchy in Israel and the continuation of their history. And so what separates 2 Samuel from 1 Samuel is that now David is king. You might say now uh, David is the one in charge, no longer running for his life. So uh, there is that particular difference. Uh, today, though, we want to look primarily at the end of the chapter. We'll deal with the first part, too. In it, an uh, 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 Amalekite uh, comes David with some of Saul's armor and helmet and whatnot, and it says that he saw Saul trying to kill himself. He was kind of botching, not botching it, and so Saul asked him to finish him off. And so the Amalekite did that, which you know is a lie. So we saw what happened last year. Last week. So David uh, takes care of that situation. And then, beginning, let's all stand. We'll read uh, 2 Samuel chapter 1, starting in verse 17. It said, And David lamented with this lamentation over Saul and Jonathan his son. And he said, It should be taught to the people of Judah. Behold, it is written in the book of Jashar. He said, your glory, O Israel, is slain on your high places. How the mighty have fallen. Tell it not in Gath. Publish it not in the streets of Ashkelon. For don't, if they, is a disgrace, uh, in a sense, uh, bad news. So don't tell it to the enemies. Lest the daughters of the Philistines rejoice that the daughters of the uncircumcised exalt. You mountains of Gilboa, let there be no dew or rain upon you, nor fields of offerings. For there the shield of the mighty has, was defiled, the shield of Saul was not, not anointed with oil. From the blood of the slain, from the fat of the mighty, the bow of Jonathan took, turned not back, and the sword of Saul returned not empty. Saul and Jonathan, beloved and lovely, in life and in death, they are, were not divided. They were swifter than eagles, they were strong, stronger than lions. You daughters of Israel, weep over Saul, you clothed your luxurious, you clothed you who clothed you luxuriously in scarlet, who put ornaments of gold on your apparel. How the mighty have fallen in the midst of the battle. Jonathan lies slain in your high places. I am distressed for you, my brother Jonathan. Very pleasant have you been to me. Your love to me was extraordinarily surpassing the love of women. How the mighty have fallen in the weapons of war perished. So, just kind of an interesting uh, chapter for a number of reasons. Uh, let me just quickly remind ourselves what we saw last week. You put new batteries in this, right? So it should be working. We saw uh, the conclusion of David and Saul's uh, conflict. David has become strong while Saul, who was, of course, a godless, forever ruined. Then we uh, kind of finished up with Jonathan and just uh, his uh, death. No matter how small your service might be, it is important to the Lord. He will reward. Just to be remind ourselves that, that uh, um, no matter God has put you where He wants you, and while it might not be something that you have a lot of acclamation, um, um, any praise, or important at least in, in some way compared to others, that doesn't mean that. There's not great reward and great purpose in what you're doing. So it's extremely 
profitable and good thing to remind ourselves when it comes to our life, our outlook on our life. Maybe we haven't our life to trap what we wanted it to, but if you have been faithful, then there is great reward for those things. But Jonathan never seemed to have success, even though he was a godly man, but we know that he is at this moment before the throne rejoicing and we can apply this to the least of us in the kingdom. Nothing is ultimately tragic or futile for the same God. And so it's extremely important thing to remember. So this book, uh, Second Samuel, is a continuation of the chronology of David's life. But now, of course, David is in charge. He's not running for his life. So his example is to be more of one who is a king, uh, not uh, reacting to wrongs done to him so much as uh, what he does now as king. It's not hard to see that David's life maybe hasn't turned out at this point as he thought it would when Samuel first anointed him. Right, uh, and, and certainly that's been perhaps true of us. I kind of, as I already kind of mentioned, uh, we and when, you know, when you're young, you have life is more possibility than anything, right? And then when you grow older, uh, it doesn't turn out the way you you wanted, maybe necessarily. Sometimes it does, and that's all well and good too. But the thing to remember is that. Um, the Lord's ways are different than our ways. Uh, the Christian life is one that, uh, and we'll deal with this in our second message, uh, it's one of trials and, and difficulty, uh, so that it gives us opportunity to serve the Lord where we couldn't before. So if your life just turned out the way you wanted and the way you would choose yourself, you would be very weak. You would, you would, have, you would not have the opportunity to serve the Lord and to glorify His name. And so that's just a, a hold our back, if you will, that we have to come to grips with. And that's okay, uh, because we're, we're here to serve the Lord, and, and rest comes later. So um, certainly we're seeing with David, who foreshadows Christ, but in one sense all Christians, even with Christ, there was first suffering, and then the glory followed, right? And with David, there has been suffering, but the glory now is to follow, and uh, that will you know, that'll be the same with us as well. So, like First Samuel, or any other narrative about a uh, biblical personality, Second Samuel is not about David as much as it is about his greater son. And so, we might find it interesting because of all the neat stories, and there are certainly a great, a lot of interesting stories, not just in Second Samuel, but of course in the entire Bible, and especially the Old Testament. But, we don't primarily find this interesting and profitable because um, of that, but it's because we're seeing our redemption worked out. We're seeing something of our salvation in Jesus Christ. We profit most not by reading the Bible as a self-help guide, um, how to have a better life, but by learning who God is and what he is doing with us. That's the most profit uh, in the word of God because it teaches about God. The Bible is a theological book. Theology is the study of God. And even in the study of our redemption, it is a study of why God is re- has redeemed sinners, why he made the earth and why things are turning out the way it is. He's got a plan. So it's all about God and in that, in our salvation. And so that's where the prophet lies. There, and there are many ways the prophet can 
Bible study. Certainly it teaches us about life, how to live, and all those things which are fine. But it's primarily uh, to exalt Christ before us. So one of the obvious ways we study this part of David's life will be learning of the covenant that God is going to make with him in chapter 12 or 7, I believe it is, where God makes a covenant with David uh, concerning uh, uh, the kingdom. And that will be one more layer uh, that we will learn about when it comes to Jesus Christ and who he is. So it's far more than just a historical document, although it is certainly that. The account of the Amalekite in the first part of the chapter certainly could have fit in the first Samuel since that was uh, took place there. But what we see here is that um, this second Samuel is all about David. And here we see someone trying to get on David's good side. After, and so in one sense, it's the first act of David after Saul's death, right? And the narrator has already told us that Saul has successfully killed himself. And so this man is assuming that David is going to reward him for finishing uh, Saul off. But of course, first of all, this Amalekite is lying. Second of all, he is an Amalekite uh, who will to all have been put to death anyway uh, under Saul, which that's one of the big failures of Saul. So just the fact that he's a Malachite lets us know and probably to David too, David would be wary of anything he says and uh, obviously he realizes that there's something wrong here. And David takes, and it's perhaps why David takes such a hard line with him. He does prove that he did come by Saul because he has some of his personal effects. But we know that Saul killed himself by falling on a sword. And here the Amalekite says that uh, Saul asked him to finish him off. And so he did that. And of course, if you think by now, maybe, you know, this guy doesn't realize some of the things that happened before. But you think by now, people realize uh, raising your hand up against uh, those in authority, David doesn't. Uh, do very well because they have died. And interestingly enough, in a couple of chapters, we're going to see the same thing happen again. So, some, it seems like some slow learners uh, around here. But uh, anyway, so what he basically says is that at the time that Saul, until during the battle, is at the time when Saul realized that he was about to be overtaken by the Philistines. He happens to wander around through and come up upon Saul and finish him off. So, just the whole idea that he's kind of wandering around and picking up uh, artifacts from some of the dead bodies when the battle really is not even over uh, in itself is probably David didn't really believe. But what the Amalekite doesn't know, of course, is that David doesn't believe that it's okay to take human life in one's own hands especially when it comes to divinely appointed authority, even here when Saul is mortally wounded. And uh, and again, I, I'm going to be careful of trying to develop all my ideas of life and death and killing and, and so forth from this account because there's a lot of things going on here. But I think it certainly causes us to, to get a begin to get an overall overall picture of how the Lord sees, for instance, euthanasia. The idea that, well, someone has come to a point in his life where he no longer uh, wants to live, 
And is it okay to go ahead and kill them? And of course, I, I don't think it is. I think the Bible is pretty clear about it. we need to be very careful with human life and certainly the taking of human life. And, uh, you know, it's, if David teaches anything, it's that it's God's place to take life um, in, in the ordinary course of events. Now, we know that war, civil punishment, self-defense, there are exceptions. But if, if there's anything here to learn is that we are to take it very seriously and clearly for other reasons as well, abortion uh, is off the table, euthanasia is off the table, uh, just because someone you know doesn't experience the quality of life they want does not mean that it's okay to commit suicide or to um, have somebody else do it, like, like Dr. Kaborkian. He uh, basically as a doctor who was a doctor who uh, committed assisted suicide. It was illegal at the time, anyway. It was all kind of everything kind of up, up in the air anymore, morally, morally speaking. But um, and I believe he was prosecuted uh, and went to jail. Some of you might remember. Correct me if I'm wrong about that. But, but, no, you don't. We don't get to make that decision. Uh, there's a country, I forget where it is, uh, it wasn't too long ago, I heard they passed a law where, under, in certain cases, minors can commit suicide. And it's okay to help them commit suicide. It's just beyond sad. But, again, what, but one understands and reads the Bible, you begin to see that, no, we're created in the image of God, and we are to take that very seriously. And certainly David shows what happens when we don't respect God's authority. And the narrative clearly comes down on David's side in these issues as well. So if you lie, be prepared to accept the consequences. Don't expect the Lord to bail you out in certain situations as this Amalekite uh, lies. Also, I think David wisely makes an object lesson of how he expects to be treated as king. No matter what you think of him, God has made him king, and it is not your right to um, dispose him of that. Now, this is a theocracy. There's a sense in which this is God's physical kingdom. It's not exactly the same as every other kingdom on earth in history. I understand that. But I... I think we certainly the New Testament reminds us of being subjection to this different spheres of authority, whether it be children to the parents, wife to the husband, uh, members of the, of the church to the elders, uh, citizens to the government. There's these different spheres, and and we're being, it's being impressed upon us that that is God ordained for that there might be order and for the social good, and. So we got to be very careful before we would rise up against that. Now, that doesn't mean that whatever Jeff and I say, everybody has to follow blindly. I don't think it means that there aren't some times where it's legitimate to rise up against civil authority. But it's a it's a thing that must be taken very considered very carefully, especially when you're talking about perhaps civil authority that is starting to abuse those in their uh, uh, that they are over so you know but teach your children to respect 
authority, to understand that it's there for a reason and that it's an important thing uh, when you would ever buck up against it in some way. And so, there's a couple of things here. In verse 11, David, when David hears that Saul is dead, he lays hold of his clothes and tears them, uh, which was kind of a, a normal thing to do in mourning. And so did all the men who were with him. And they mourned and wept and fasted until evening for Saul and for Jonathan, his son. And then, of course, once David had finished the what would be considered the proper mourning for Saul and Jonathan, uh, he turns around and has his men kill the Amalekites and lift up his hand against uh, Saul, which is kind of, he's been, David's been consistent about anything as that, right? But, so there's two things here in this chapter. There is the initial grief that David has upon hearing that someone that he had great respect for, is, and again, he loved Jonathan, and we'll see in this moment that he has a special way of, of referring to Jonathan. Um, he, obviously, I don't know if he, he loved Saul, but to, to him, David, clearly Saul represented the kingdom of Israel, and that's why he had such reluctance to kill him or lift up his hand against him, because he looked at him as a representative of God's people, and therefore he held him in high esteem because of his love for the Lord and for Israel, right? So anyway, there's this initial grief over hearing about it, and then, uh, then of course, he, he kills the Amalekites. And then, uh, after that, he sits down and writes a lament. And to me, this is an extremely, one, 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 of, the, one of those things in Scripture that I have always remembered. Well, that's just my first verse through for Samuel, or second Samuel. It's, it, it, was, it made a great impression upon me when I thought about the idea here of David writing down a lament. In other words, this is not his initial grief and mourning. This took place later when he had a chance to think about it. And he writes this down. So I want to just talk a little bit about that. Um, that David uh, was obviously wasn't full of joy that his enemy was dead and that Israel had been, not, had been defeated in battle. Even though Saul uh, was a um, trying to kill him as I said that Saul represented something so that um, David looked at that as a bad thing I think we referred to this verse last week somebody was asking a question but Psalm, Proverbs 24 17 do not rejoice when your enemy falls and let not your heart be glad when you stumble bless the Lord see it and be displeased to turn away his anger from him and we're seeing what we have generally seen with David, that he is more concerned with the honor of God than his own little soap opera. Soap opera. And so I think that's kind of what the proverb is speaking to. If we make such things all about us, and we are only glad that our enemy has died or he has stumbled in some way, and we don't consider the fact, perhaps certainly if your enemy dies, that, well, okay, you're, yes, he's dead, but he's also in hell, perhaps then that should cause some mourning. That should cause some grief. Even when somebody stumbles, you know, we got to be careful of making this all about ourselves so that we are only look at life by how it affects me. 
I think the verse is telling us that no, we have to look at life at how it affects the Lord and the kingdom of God, which is what David is doing. This is why he can mourn for Saul. And if we make such things all about us and not mourn, especially when a sinner slips off into eternity, then we we would end up dishonoring the Lord. And the Lord says that he might turn uh, his attention against us, perhaps, you know, away from your enemies. And uh, it's, it's some work that he needs to do on us. So it's important that, uh, here that um, we, we consider, and, and this, this is going to help us as now as we come to David's lament, that when we realize that we are here for the greater purpose of serving the Lord, then everything that happens to us is to be used for that opportunity, right, for, to, to that end, including... When our friends or our loved ones die, David sees this as an opportunity to write about that experience. And that's what we have here in uh, the lament. For some reason, uh, coming to verse 17 where David writes this lament over the death of Saul and Jonathan, uh, you know, because I was raised, you know, I was born in 59. Uh, one of my earliest memories is watching the Charlie Brown cartoons, right? Uh, and, and one thing I have never been able to break, if you want to call it a, a bad habit, is, you know, what is Charlie Brown known for? Saying good grief, right? And I, can, I you know, I've, I've said it all my life. Uh, you know, but in one sense, uh, there's no such thing as good grief because by definition, grief is a bad thing, right? But what we see here is that uh, grief can be used in a good way. So we you, grief might be bad, but you can have well-used grief. A Christian, as everything in his life, can use it in a good way. Uh, in other words, there is a time to grieve and to have sorrow. And a right way to do that is, as Paul says, we grieve, but not as the world of those who have no hope, right? And I think David gives us a good example of this. Later on, David's son writes in Ecclesiastes 3, 4. There's a time to weep, a time to laugh, a time to mourn, and a time to dance. Better to go to the house of mourning. And notice here, it's better to go to the house of mourning than to go to the house of feasting. Now, that's goes against the way we like to think, right? Because we we tend to think it's better to be happy and healthy than to not be, right? And just in a physical sense, you can make that argument. It's, it's better to be healthy than sick, right? It's better to be full than hungry or starving. But, again, we're looking at all these things from the Lord's point of view, from a Christian standpoint, a Christian worldview. And here the, the preacher says it is better to go to the house of mourning. So it's better to be, in in some sense, in mourning than to go to the house of feasting, for this is the end of all mankind, and the living will lay it to heart. So there's something that will be learned at a funeral, we might say, that cannot be learned, and that is not as profound as when you are at a feast, at a party. He says sorrow is better than laughter. So it's not that there's a time for sorrow, a time for laughter, it's all equal. 
Though there is a time, life will be full of sorrow, life will be full of laughter, but the sorrow is better. And that just is counterintuitive to how we want to think, right? Because I can understand that. For by sadness of face the heart is made glad, the heart of the wise is in the house of mourning, but the heart of the fool is in the house of mercy. I think the idea there is that the fool only wants to be happy, but the wise person realizes that there is a, a there is benefit in mourning, right? And I think this kind of helps to set up what we're going to see here with David. We don't have to always be sad because bad things happen and they continue to happen. There's a time for that. There's a time to be happy. God didn't mean to, for the fact that sin and death is in the world to mean that it's wrong to have fun and to laugh and to enjoy life when we can. That, that's, I think, one of the things we learned from that. You know, there, there certainly have been Christians who think that any kind of levity and general happiness is, is we just got to always be mourning, always mourning over our sin. Well, there's a, you can do that and still be happy and have a good time, but you don't always have to be downcast. You don't always have to be looking down. Even in the worst of times, there's, there's so many great things to uh, look to the Lord for and to enjoy with God's people and family and so forth. At the same time, life is more than just having fun. And so we have to properly be able to evaluate the bad times as well as to be serious no matter what is going on. Just because everything is right at this moment good or joyful or pleasant doesn't mean that we can forget what is really going on in this world of sin, right? Never, never be so caught up in our emotions or in our circumstances, that we forget what what life is really about and, and what we're here for. So we can never get so carried away with the good times that we forget that they will end. Tomorrow uh, they might end. Um, you know, as, as we get older, we realize that, well, some of the stuff we enjoy as younger, uh, we won't ever see again. And that's okay. Because life is more about more than just about pleasantness or good things, uh, health. It's about the Lord. So verses 17 and 18 tell us a couple of things. First of all, this is an official lament. He writes it down and he expects this to be read to other people to be a benef- beneficial to them. So again, so let's just think about it. He has lost a loved one. Someone he loves dearly. He has grieved over that. Which is proper. You would, there's something wrong with you, you don't. You don't mourn over things like that. You know, grief, grief is not sin. Excessive grief can be sin. But it's not wrong to be sad when sad things happen. But he says, look, now I want to use this in a way that it glorifies the Lord. A lament is not mourning. Although there's a connection here. A lament is a formal expression of grief and sorrow as opposed to a spontaneous outpouring of emotion as we saw in verses 11 and 12. That's where he hears it. If if someone comes to your door and says, your mother has just died, or your wife has just died, whatever, 
there is going to be an overflow of emotion, right? That's just the way we're built, and what would you expect? That, that's the, the downside, if you will, of love. It is to, to miss them when you don't have it, and, and that's good. That, that's, that's proper. That, that's just part of it. There's nothing wrong with spontaneity in such things. But what we're seeing here, starting in verse 17, is a is separate from that. David, as, a, after the emotion has subsided to some degree, he says, okay, if I put it in, in our language, as a Christian, what am I going to do with this? Am I just going to be sad? Am I just going to give up? Am I just going to sit in my home because I've lost my wife of, you know, 40, 50, 60 years, and so life has no meaning. The joy has gone out of my life. Well, life will never be the same. There will always be that emptiness. You know, we're not denying any of that. But, in a very real and proper sense, life goes on. And if you're, if you, if you have the Lord, there still is, should be every reason to be able to have joy and happiness along with the, the, the loss. Often in spontaneous grief, and here's one of the reasons why this is different than a lament. Often in spontaneous grief, words are poured out in emotion without much thought. And it's not unusual for us to sometimes say things that, if we had been thinking more clearly, we would not have said. There's a sense in which we always do this, right? Whenever something hits us with great emotion, it's not unusual for us to say something we really which we hadn't said, whether we say something in anger or whatever. We might say something as Christians that we know biblically is just not true, right? Sometimes emotion, when emotion speaks, often it's not good. I've seen Christians, though, who have, in the emotion of the loss of a loved one, say things that just aren't biblical. And, 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 and we've got to be careful. We don't need to go around correcting people. You know, a man's just lost his wife. And, you know, he said something, you know, just something off the top of my head. I, you know, I think I saw this on TV maybe recently where someone had lost somebody. And a little girl had lost her father and she was told, well, he's up, he's up in heaven. He's watching over you, taking care of you. Well, that's just hideously unbiblical. Uh, whether you're saying the saints of God know what's going on with us or not, I don't know. But I know that God's still on the throne. I don't need my dead parents or whoever taking care of me because they can't. The Lord takes care of me. So, no. It, 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 and I've heard Christians say things like that or say things that are unbiblical. And it's not our job to run up there and say, oh, no. But later on, once the emotions have subsided and it's still being said, well, now maybe there's an opportunity that we need to correct, make corrections. But that's my point, that what what David does now is after he's had a chance to think things through, he wants to teach, he wants to be a testimony. That's why I think this is so important. This lament is done later when words can be carefully chosen. So 
so others can be instructed. The intensity of emotion and sorrow unites now with the discipline of one's mind as we meditate on truth and to work through what's happened to us, which is how Christians are to live anyway, right? No matter what happens to you, we meditate on the word of God as to how to respond and to deal with whatever situation we're in. And that doesn't just change because all of a sudden you've lost a child. It's much more difficult, probably. But nothing changes. Nothing all of a sudden becomes untrue. God doesn't all of a sudden become mean. And our responsibilities don't change just because our world has been turned upside down to some degree. Because if we're if we're standing upon the Lord Jesus Christ, our world can never really be undone. It can seem like it at times, again, the emotions, but we know that nothing has changed. We are still in Christ, right? So it's very important things to think about. And so, as he has meditated on truth, he gives insight on what he has learned and some things that he thinks are important. It is this a lament is a coherent, careful, and, and it's home to express the experience to others. We have a whole book about this, right? In the Bible. What? Lamentations, right? Josh, Jeremiah is uh, lamenting what happened with Israel. The destruction of Jerusalem and the, the, the enemies of God overtaking God's people and all, the, the dishonor of the Lord and the, 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 the desecration of the temple. He's lamenting as he writes these things down. Now he's doing it under inspiration. But there's just another example that I think as Christians, and this is something not here very often, right? I think it's our responsibility in, to testify of what the Lord has taught us in trials and tribulation and to glorify Him in it, to exalt the Lord in lamentation. And, and by that I mean to either at our testimony service or to write it down, to express it to people, to speak it, to speak uh, on these things. Not just to react, but to, as the Lord gives us ability, to testify, to write a lament. And you don't hear about that, you know, you know, in our culture anyway, you don't hear a lot about writing a lament or speaking a lament. Now, there's a sense in which a eulogy can be very similar to that. You know, I've heard some great people do some great jobs of bringing the experience of losing their their loved one into the Lord and His will and all sorts of wonderful ways to testify of Christ. So it certainly we do that. But I don't think it's wrong to write it down. For years, and I really need to probably do it again, start this up again, and I, I let moving down here different things kind of persuade me. I know for all the, most of the years in New York, for instance, I, I had a little uh, website where I would write a uh, post, uh, blog, if you will. And a lot of it was just kind of expanding on sermons and points I made in the sermon I thought was good. Sometimes it was just observation. I remember one time I was driving down the road and I saw a hawk sitting on a uh, telephone line. And it just led to me working through a whole thing about the Lord and I wrote it down, right? 
And I have that in a collection. And I want to get, and I think my children were reading that as I did it, but I want to give it to my grandchildren. There's enough there to be like a year's worth of devotion. Just writing down things, expressing things, again, it doesn't have to be written down, but to express things to people about the Lord. And of course, as a pastor, I get the opportunity to do that. I'm doing it now, right? I'm, I'm looking at something uh, and I'm teasing out how this might, you know, how I understand this and what perhaps we can do with it. And I think, you know, we need to be careful that we, that we take it seriously. Don't just sit on the sidelines and receive and receive and never give and give. We want to hear what the Lord is doing and teaching you. It doesn't matter if you're a child or a woman, you still have the opportunity to minister to us. You, you don't have to be behind the pulpit to do that, right? So I'm just saying, Dave, I just, I think this, I just, it just struck me one day as I was reading this, as I was studying this about David writing a lament. So it might be profitable, and perhaps here we are being instructed that it's the duty of saints to get to a point and, and I think that's unquestionable. It, there's a duty for us to get to a point where we can use such things in a way that helps the Lord and glorifies God, right? And nothing is the opposite of this would be someone who goes through a traumatic experience and they sit at home and they uh, give up on life. They run. They, they, they fall into depression. And I, again, we've all seen that. I know I've seen that. I've had a member of my church in New York fall into that, and it was a you struggle with her for years. That you you you, you use the, the, you use the problems that God puts in your path, and again, this is going to play into uh, the, the end of our message in the next hour. You use something to do the exact opposite of instead of writing a lament, writing something to express how the goodness of God in all this, you use it to to isolate yourself from the world and to be a poor testimony of the Lord Jesus Christ. And so, I hope we can see here just the difference of those two things. Notice here that then that it's David's first concern is with God and his children, God's people's reputation, not just him and, and how it affects him. There's going to be a reason, he says, for the, if you, as you read through this, uh, it, it was going to be a reason for the heathen to rejoice to dishonor the Lord. A lot of funerals are that. They're just, they're just opportunities for people to say a lot of nonsense that doesn't serve anybody's purpose. But his mourning was going to be, uh, was going to be one that uh, he wants to see God exalted. So be quiet. Don't, don't tell this to our enemies. We're not going to play that game. And the basic, next thing he does is he basically says, remember Gilboa, that's the place where the battle uh, took place where Saul and Jonathan died. And he uses this as, as, as a way to inspire. To It's kind of like when we say, remember the Alamo. Remember what happened. And that causes us to do something. It, 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 the, uh, the Israel military, the modern day Israel, their military swear their oaths of allegiance on Masada. And if you know anything about Masada, it's where a group of Jews had kind of a last stand and, and the Romans came and slaughtered them, much, much like Alamo. 
at the Alamo. And so they use that to inspire, uh, in this case, loyalty to the state, to, the, to their to the military, and to what they're doing. Some some measure of patriotism. So in other words, what David is doing is saying, remember the pain and the emotion, and when you do, use it to give yourself anew to the Lord's service. Just remember that death of that loved one, but not in a way that just causes you to just you know fall apart, but to to express something about the Lord. That's what I think the preacher there in Ecclesiastes was saying. There are things that are more important than just having fun. It's profitable, more profitable, he says, to be faced with the grim reality of sin and death and not to have physical comfort because that is the Lord testing us and and, and molding us and doing things with us. Also here in in, in this lament, David is realistic about their lives. Verse 24 and 26, he he, he says the weep over Saul, he, he admits you know that Saul had a, a measure of of blessing upon Israel uh, with Jonathan. Jonathan, of course, was a good friend, a, a trusted friend, he, uh, and he is mourning them. And uh, he calls for the daughters of Israel to weep for Saul. But you see, he kind of personally is involved in mourning Jonathan. You can see he has a love for Jonathan, but he did not have for Saul. There was a difference there. He was a true friend. Um. More loyal than family, as he says here, uh, surpassing the love of women. Uh, there are, uh, of course, the, the perverts who say, well, there you see that David and Saul and Jonathan had some sort of uh, illicit love affair. No, it's a different kind of love. It's a love that goes beyond that you might have a romantic love. This was a bosom buddy, you know, a close friend type of love. It's, it's, it's given, using a statement of how, uh, the, the relationship that they had. Jonathan was a true servant of the Lord and he was worth missing and mourning. We know, remember Jonathan told when they made that, when he made that covenant with David, I will be second to you. Jonathan knew that David was going to be the king and he was okay with that. Yeah, he knew that he was not going to be king even though he was Saul's son. David loses a rare friend and there's no evidence that he ever received got a, got a, Replace anybody else with what he had in Jonathan. So I think it might be profitable in our meditations to put things in ink or to speak things publicly. Um, if we have a sense of serving others, then don't just let life happen to you. See the providence and the testing and the trials and the, and the blessings of God as opportunities to glorify His name. In those moments when you are thinking clearly, when you've had a chance to settle down, you know, in some cases, when you've given the Word of God sufficient time to work in your mind and your life, then don't hide your light under a bushel. Don't be afraid to speak out and to say something. Don't be afraid to testify of the Lord's goodness to God's people. That's what being a Christian is. So relate what you have learned uh, to your children, to friends, to the church. Speak, write, don't remain silent. As I said before, don't just give, or don't just take, but give, bless, don't just benefit. Ask yourself, do 
uh, I seek to be beneficial to other people's lives? Do I seek to be an influence upon others? Or do I, am I always receiving help from people, but I don't seem to ever have anything to offer? If you know Jesus Christ as your Lord and Savior, you have something to offer to people. And, you know, the, the younger might struggle with life experiences in, in wisdom to pass on, but we all, you know, the Lord works in all, everyone's life to some degree. So, don't be someone who just sits there and takes it all in. When the Lord works in our lives, do we use it as an opportunity or is it just in our little private, everything is just about me and my little private world and I don't realize that I am, as, as the, the uh, writer says, you know, no man is an island. If you think yourself as an island, you you, you lose the, the purpose of living in society. And certainly in the church. So even in one of David's darker days, he takes time to write down his thoughts and to formulate a lament for the sake of others. And this is a, we see this as a service. So in other words, it's not just weeping and sadness and grieving, but seeking to use every opportunity in a way that is worthwhile. I think that's a good funeral strategy. Speak of the life of your loved one, but do so in a way that relates their life to the Lord and in some way that edifies people. Whether it be God's people or whether we have to use it as a way to edify the lost. I mean, unpleasant as funerals are in one sense to me it's a great opportunity I love to do funerals because I have a captive audience who have been forced to think about their mortality and I'm going to talk to them about the Lord tell them about you know their need of the Lord it's just a great opportunity right and and I've been to funerals where that just did not happen where I was very disappointed if there was even a preacher there who just did not give the gospel, certainly not any kind of clear presentation of the gospel, and just a missed opportunity, just all about how we miss this person, which is all well and good, but if, but if they did not bring the Lord in, and when you do that, that to me is just supposed to sin. So speak about what you're going through, but how the Lord is sustaining you, let us not just do nothing. So I think there's great example here in David's living. Any questions or comments? Yes, Rick. Father, we thank you for your love to us this day. And Lord, we just uh, are encouraged by, uh, as we see your people uh, in the Bible, uh, deal with difficult things and do so in a way that, uh, Lord, edifies us and the blessing want to be that blessing to others as well. So easy to uh, get caught up in ourselves and to relate everything to ourselves and not to you. And so we pray that you would help us to release us from that kind of selfishness. Impress upon us our utter dependency on Christ, the blessings that we have in him, that each one of us have been gifted. No Christian is without gifts to be used and Give us a holy boldness, the sense of joy of the Lord that we want to express that to others. In Jesus' name we pray.